On every Lord's Day, we gather to celebrate the resurrection. Every Communion Sunday, we celebrate the Lord's death. Now, in times past, in early Christianity, they did both every Sunday. They met together, they worshipped and exulted in the resurrection, and they also took communion every Sunday. I'm not really sure why it fell out of favor with Protestant churches. Sometimes it's because of our tendency to overcorrect and because Catholicism made the Eucharistic offering the highlight of every Lord's Day and said it was made it makes a huge deal of the Eucharistic celebration where they turn the body and blood of the, these elements into the literal body, blood, and divinity of Christ and would have adoration for it. Sometimes in Protestantism there's a uh, the tendency to overcorrect, and so because the Catholic Church does it every single Sunday of the year, and some Catholic uh, parishes, they do it every day. The Catholic Church in Lawton, where we lived at, they had daily Mass every day at 7.30, or 8.30, I can't remember which, it was 8.30. You know, we only do it once a month, once a month. And then, so on this particular Sunday, we observe the resurrection of Christ, and the death of Christ. It's important to remember the death of Christ. The Lord spoke to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and he said to him, as often as you do this, you remember my body and my blood. Now, for many persons, communion is just a ritual of the church, just something that we do every Sunday, week after week, or month after month. But it's more than that. And I hope that today we can make this communion we have today more precious, more precious. Let's make a prayer together. I'm going to walk you through a a good bit of scripture this morning. Heavenly Father, we bow here together in our hearts, and I pray that you would be with these, my friends and brothers and sisters who are here, that you would give them ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that can believe. I pray that you would grant it to them, Father. I pray that you would give me the same, Lord. But Father, I pray that you would give me the unction, the help of the Holy Spirit to make to make clear these precious truths of Scripture. And these things, they are very clear in Scripture, but our minds are very clouded. Help us, Lord, to leave this place today rejoicing in the peace that has been made possible through the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The question may come up sometimes, why exactly do I need peace with God? Because I feel like I'm at peace with God right now. Because I don't, he's not, he doesn't seem to be giving me any dispeace or disturbance in my life. Why do I really need peace with God? Why should I be concerned about it? Now, if you had a conflict on your way to church this morning between husband and wife, have you ever had to happen you're driving to church with your family, got your wife and your kids, and on the way to church you have some disagreement about something? Ever happened to you? You ever had a disagreement at work and it kind of disrupts the fellowship of your workplace and you wish everybody would just calm down or knock it off or shut their mouths and you know about, you desire peace in all your relationships with people because it disrupts your it disrupts your right now. That's what it does. But, I, but people don't walk around feeling like their peace with God is disrupted because they're going to wake up tomorrow. 
they're going to drink some coffee, they're going to go fishing or go to work or whatever they're going to do, and they're not going to feel like there's a disturbance between them and God. So why is it that we need peace with God? We need peace with God because unbeknownst to us, we are at odds with God. We are at odds with God. We have an enmity towards God. There is a hostility that exists between us and God that we're not always aware of. Now, just because you are not aware of it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. You ever had somebody come and say, hey, we're having a problem. You're like, well, I don't know about any problem. What are you talking about? Valerie, and, and we've, been married, not, we've been married 50 years. We've only been married 25 years. But in, in that, you know, five lustrums of marriage, there has been some times when she said, Terry, our marriage right now is a, a three. She get rates it. Our marriage is a three. And I say, oh, great, because I'm on a scale of one to three. <laughs> one being the best, right? But she'll say, oh, no, 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 no. The scale is like 100. <laughs> it's 10, you know. And you're at a three right now. And I'll say, but why, honey? You're married, you're married to Mr. Wonderful. I mean, everything you want or need, I supply for you, you know. So I'm not aware that there is a problem. But there is a problem, and she'll say, look, now, you did this, or you said this, or I've interpreted something that you did or said as being this. It wasn't long ago, there was <laughs> something happened here in the church, and it was after vacation Bible school. And me and a few other people who I'll, I'll, I'll not mention their names to protect them. But after BBS was over, we had all these chairs taken out. We set up all these chairs over here. And then the next Sunday... Uh, Brother Granger, who does the chairs, he came to see me, and he said, Terry, he said, are you sending me a message? And I said, about what, Jim? He said, do you, are, you, are you trying to tell me you don't like the way that I've been setting up the chairs? I said, well, no. He said, you're sure? I said, yeah. He said, why did you do it so badly then? <laughs> uh, that's just, you know, sometimes we don't understand what's happening. Sometimes we read into it. But I want you to know something, that every one of you here today, outside of Jesus Christ, you are at odds with God. You are not in the status of peace and fellowship with God, and you may not know it. But today, with God's help, I want you to know that on your own merits, in your, on your own abilities, you have no peace with God. The only way you can have peace with God is through Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why you don't have peace with God is because of your nature. Genesis chapter 3 describes for us the fall of mankind. The fall of mankind. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, it tells us that by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin, it was through that man, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. You see, in the Garden of Eden, our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they lived in a place called paradise. They lived in a wonderful world. And God gave to them only one, one single statute. And we may say, well, that was not much of a rule, but it was the rule. And the rule was, don't eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve began with Eve and culminates in Adam's action. Is They began to look at that tree and they heard the voice of Satan. And Satan told them, God is trying to keep you from something wonderful. 
God is trying to keep you from something wonderful. And Eve began to believe this lie about God. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you here in this room right now don't feel that very way about God. God is keeping me from something wonderful. God is trying to hold me down. God's trying to suppress me. God's trying to wreck my vibe. But God is not. God sets up fences to keep us safe. To keep us safe. You ever been out in the woods hunting and come along a barbed wire fence that's stretched around, maybe it's just around a few trees, it's not really square, not really has any purpose to it, and you're like, why, why is that there in the woods? And it's an old homestead, and on these old homesteads, sometimes they would have to dig a, a hand-dug well that maybe, you know, 8 to 12 feet deep, maybe even deeper, and they put that little strands of barbed wire around that little bit of trees to keep people from stepping in there and falling and becoming injured. We put up fences to keep people safe. And God says, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat of that, you'll die. But Eve, she heard the voice of Satan. Satan said to her, God knows that if you eat of this forbidden tree, God has forbidden you the access to this tree because God wants to make you miserable. So don't eat of it. And some of you are listening to Satan's lies right now because Satan is saying all kinds of things to you about God. God doesn't like you. God doesn't care for you. God doesn't want you to be happy. God's against you. God's your enemy. And you're saying, you know what? I agree with you, Satan. You start to do things that God doesn't want you to do. But the reality of that is that Satan is a liar. He can't be trusted because he knows that if you do those things that God has forbidden, he knows that there is a pleasure there but it's only temporary. But there, are, there is a pain there. When, I, when Eve ate of that tree of knowledge of good and evil and she gave it to her husband, Adam, the Bible says when they both ate, they realized that they were naked. Something deep took place in their life and they were changed, irreversibly changed in their nature. And their status with God was changed. The first thing that they did when they knew that they were naked was they do what everybody does even to this day. Usually when people are presented with the gospel, with becoming a Christian, they hear that and they think, okay, I know I don't measure up to God's standard because to get into heaven you got to be really good. I know I don't measure up to God's standard, so I'm just going to try again to be better. I'm going to do better. How many of you guys have ever been on a diet? Anybody ever been on a diet? Now, I've been on quite a few diets in my life. One time, believe it or not, uh, I joined a gym and Weight Watchers in the same week. <laughs> I've been on, you don't remember we went to Texarkana? We went together, we joined Weight Watchers. You've forgotten that? <laughs> she blocked it out. Maybe I didn't really join. Maybe I was just going with you. I, just, yeah, I was just going with her. That's right. Valerie's been worried about losing her mind lately. And, and so that's why she's making all these gestures of joy. We were, I don't remember that. We just talked about it. We were eating breakfast this morning. She said, Terry, I wonder if I'm losing my mind. And I said, Terry who? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, what was I saying, Valerie? Weight Watchers. And I've been on lots of diets. Because you're always trying to off and on, off and on, off and on. You know, and I've, I've been members of the gym before lots of times. And you know what, what happens when you begin a fitness reg, regiment or a diet? Well, you fall off the wagon. 
And then, you know, you'll, you'll say, ah, oh, I'm going to do better tomorrow. I'm going to do better. And so you, you just start trying to do better. But you find yourself never doing any better. There's a pastor who I watch his videos sometimes on the Internet. And uh, around about 2017, all of a sudden I noticed he had really slimmed down. And I was like, dang, he is trim. And then I just, this past week, I checked him out on the, on the interwebs to see what he was up to. And I thought, whoa, he's beefed up. <laughs> Actually, he fatted up. <laughs> I mean, he went back to his old ways. Because people, you cannot keep it up. You can't keep up a diet. You can't keep up a health regimen. You, you can't keep it. It's so hard to keep it going. And what people do is when they're confronted with the gospel and they hear that get, you have to be righteous to go to heaven, a lot of people say, you know what? I'm just going to do better at being righteous. And they start busting their hump to be righteous. They, they try to make themselves better through reformation. And what they do is they swing into a thing called legalism and they're just trying to perform, 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 perform. But you can't perform. You can't keep it up. You can't keep it up because your nature fights against you. And so what Adam and Eve did when they realized that their status with God had changed, something about them had changed. They they were aware of it. They tried to fix it themselves. And the Bible says they went and they made themselves aprons of leaves. Aprons of leaves. A ghillie suit, kind of. Something to cover over their problem. And they seem to have been pretty satisfied with these leafy aprons that they're wearing. And they're fine with it. I'm sure that when Eve came in wearing her leafy apron, Adam said, Girl, you're looking awful righteous. <laughs> and I'm sure that when Adam came in sporting his, she said, Boy, woo. I'm sure they were both very impressed with what they had achieved by their own efforts. But then... In the cool of the day, they heard a voice. The voice of God coming down into the garden to talk to them, to visit with them, to commune with them. And when they heard the voice of God, they realized that these aprons of leaves are not getting it done. Because they knew they didn't measure up to God's standard of righteousness. In order to avoid this situation, in order to avoid the revelation of their unrighteousness, in order to avoid hearing God say to them, you don't look as good as you think you do. When they heard his voice, they ran away from him. And they hid themselves. Because the presence of God caused them to see that their own works-based righteousness was not sufficient. It was sufficient for them, but it wasn't sufficient for God. And they hid from him. They hid from him. And the only reason that they ever had that little conversation in Genesis 3 with God, the only reason that conversation took place was because God drags them 
with his voice of command into his presence. And he asked them, what's been going on down here? Why did you hide from me? And Eve says, Lord, we heard your voice and we knew that we were naked. And God says, have you eaten of the tree? To Adam. And Adam, he says, she, she did it. Her fault. Now, sisters, you're still suffering from that today, aren't you? Because every man I know, every real honest-to-God man, when everything goes sideways, he blames his wife. And she couldn't even been in the garage for years. But if you can't find your 10-millimeter socket, it's her fault. <laughs> Eve... She says, it wasn't me, it was the devil. Whose fault was it really? It's all of their faults. They all did it consciously and willingly. And that is why you do not naturally have peace with God because you're in a fallen nature. Because that's how your mom and your dad were. Sisters, have you noticed that your, your husbands, have you ever looked at your husband and said, you're acting just like your dad? You ever seen those characteristics come out? Brothers, have you ever seen your wife acting just like her mom? Careful. Answer only in your mind. <laughs> I'm warning you guys. Take my advice. But you know we have these faults that come out by our nature. And something's been passed down to us through our nature is our fallen nature. And that's what puts us at odds with God, is we are fallen creatures. We are un righteous because of the fall. And that fall has put us in a negative status with God. Now, you say, well, why should I worry about it? Why should I be concerned about this at all? I mean, right now, I'm down here doing what I want to do, and God's up there doing what He wants to do, and I'm mighty happy without God. Robert Murray McShane wrote a letter to a wayward church member who said they had said, I don't need God, I don't need Christianity. And McShane wrote to him and said, the fact that you can be happy without God should really frighten you. Because happiness sometimes inebriates us or inoculates us against the truth. Happiness. Then you say, well, I'm down here and God's up there and I'm mighty happy, so why should I worry about what God has to say about anything? Well, it's because Revelation chapter 20 tells us that there is a there's a day of judgment that's coming. Now I want you to turn there actually. I want you to see this with your own eyes if you if you have a Bible. If you have a phone, turn there or iPad, whatever you got. Look at Revelation chapter 20 and I want you to see verses 11 through 15. Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. This is a picture of the last judgment. The final judgment of mankind. Verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So this person who is judging is of, is of such a powerful and austere character that even the natural elements flee away from him. This is somebody important. Somebody who is has a righteousness that even causes creation to shudder before him. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. The books. Now, we might say like this, we saw the computer fired up. There's something big going to happen here, something that was worthy of being written down. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. There is going to be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, a day of examination, a day of accountability. When you are going to be examined by Jesus, the one who sits on the throne, and he's going to examine your life based on the written record. Of your behavior. He's going to judge everything. He's going to judge the good. He's going to judge the bad. Now, I think all of you people probably have done some good things in your life. If you believe that, would you say amen? I mean, you've done good things. You, you've, you've helped people at Walmart. You've helped, you know, I'll describe the things that I would do at Walmart, you know. <clears throat> I've helped people get stuff for free. <laughs> you help people do stuff. You see some, you know, here, here in Sheboygan, you guys remember back when people did not lock their cars? No, I don't remember. I mean, they still may not lock their cars around here. But I can remember as a kid walking into Walmart with my dad or Kmart or 3D or, you know, the, whatever kind of place was around when I was a kid. And be walking across a parking lot and see somebody's lights on on their car. And my dad go, oh, their lights are on. He'd walk over to that car. If the window was down, he'd poke his arm through the window and shut the lights off. Remember when they had a little knob right there? You pulled it out, twisted it to turn on the inside lights, and you push it in? And I watched him do that. If the car window was up, I watched my dad open strangers' car doors. I'm like, Dad, what are you doing? Shutting their lights off. I've done that before. At Walmart. Of course, it took me a while to catch on to the fact that lights automatically shut off. <laughs> Remember how they used to go inside the store and you tell somebody at the, at, at the service desk, hey, page this uh, blue Chevy out here with license plate XYZ977. They left their lights on. Remember that? Because it was so important. We're all watching out for each other. We're all doing each other a solid and if you see somebody in distress, I know you guys help. You do good things. And all those things are going to be taken in account by God. And then I know you've all done bad things. And you know you've done bad things. And you know you've actually done a lot of bad thinking about things. You know it. I know it. God knows it. And he's going to, all those things are recorded. All recorded. One of the most frightening verses in the New Testament, in my opinion, is in Matthew, where it says that we will give account for every idle word that we speak. Everything's taken down. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, God's in heaven and you're on earth, so let your words be few. And, you know, it's counterintuitive to us. You're like, well, if God's way over there and I'm way down here, why do I got to worry about my words? Because he hears them all. He knows them all. Now, the outcome of this judgment 
for every person there in that text is judgment. Look at the reading. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, and that's the, that's the, that's the, uh, the subterranean underworld, the place where people are, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, what's striking about this is that everybody is judged by their works. Everybody comes up on the negative side. The only people who pass into eternal rest are those who have their names written in the book of life. Now, here's, here's the way you have to think about this. Everybody... Goes, who goes to hell, to the lake of torment, everybody who goes there goes there because they deserve it, because their works have been judged. Everybody who goes to heaven goes there because they don't deserve it. They get there by grace and by mercy. Because everybody gets judged. But only those persons whose names are in the book of life go into heaven. So when you get to the last day, to this judgment, it doesn't matter how good you've been or how bad you've been what matters if your name is in that book the book of life that's all that matters is your name in the book of life and this day of judgment is coming and you may be living your life right now you think you know god doesn't care about me and i don't care about god and i like it that way well you're going to get to this last day and when you get there if your name's not in the book of life you're not going to go to heaven because god knows what you're doing i know you you think God doesn't know what you're doing, but God does know what you're doing. He knows exactly what you're doing. There's nothing hidden from him. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, don't even whisper about the king in your bedchamber, lest a little bird whispered into his ear. God knows everything. It's all written down. When you get to this judgment... There's going to be a consequence for your sins, for your works. And what's striking to me about this is it doesn't matter how good you've been or how bad you've been. What matters is if your name is in the book of life, which leads us to that great question. How can I be sure my name is in the book of life? How can I be sure that my name is there? How can I be sure? Well, there's only one way to be sure your name is there. There's only one way to miss this judgment in the last day. And that is what you have done with Jesus Christ. What you have done with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the appointed Savior of the world. He is the appointed Savior of sinners. Jesus' whole existence in our world is for the salvation of sinners The name Jesus means Savior. Now, John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have something. Everlasting life. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
For the world was condemned already because they had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus did not come to condemn you. Jesus came to save you. But I'm here to condemn you. I'm here to condemn you. I want you to know that without Jesus, you are condemned, you're damned, you're doomed, you're toast, you are going to go to hell. You say, well, I don't like I don't like that. That's okay. Winter's coming, and I don't like that. Right? The other day, somebody said, somebody said, I saw, Valerie told me, I see leaves changing out there. I'm like, oh, man. Say no good. Winter's coming. And just as sure as winter is coming, this day of judgment's coming too. And unless you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your, your own personal faith on purpose in Jesus Christ, you're not going to escape this judgment. You're going to be condemned. I want you to feel it right now. I want you to understand that without Jesus, you are in a negative status with God, and you're in, you're in bad shape. Think of this as a doctor visit, and you've gone to see the doctor and I'm giving you the bad news. You got the disease. You got the sin. You need Christ. You need Christ more than you can understand that you need Christ. And you, God knew you needed Christ when he sent Jesus long ago to be the Savior of sinners. You cannot have peace with God without Jesus Christ. You have to admit that you are a sinner. You have to see your true status only then. Can you put your faith in Christ? You can only appreciate the good news when you've understood the bad news. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for she, he shall save his people from their sins. From their sins. John 1, 29, John the Beloved, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what Jesus did. He came to take away sins. He came to save us. You say, well, how exactly does that take place? I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, the Apostle Paul, he spent his whole life preaching the gospel to people. And when he wrote his letter to the Corinthians, he talks to them about reconciliation. And Paul is talking about his own ministry here. But in verse 17, verse 16, my Bible has this whole heading, 11 through the end of the chapter, listed as the ministry of reconciliation. The apostle is trying to reconcile sinners with God. He's trying to reconcile two parties. They're at odds with each other. But the main text I'd like to point out here, just for the, lack of, for the sake of time, is verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 21. For our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Authorized version adds, in him. This is a thing called imputation. So, I need a couple people to help me. 
and I don't know who to pick. I need somebody who's really bad. Let's see, John Everett's not here, so I have to pick somebody less bad. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I won't use anybody. I got to have somebody, though. Oh, Jose. Oh, you just got volunteered. Jose, Jose and Matt, you guys come help me. Jose and Matt. <laughs> we have Jose just stand right here. Matt, you stand right beside him, right beside him there. So here is, here is Jose who is, who is a sinner, right? And, and this coat represents Jose's unrighteousness, Jose's sin, right? And so he wears it. He has no ability to do anything about it. He's stuck with it. He cannot get rid of it at all. But God sent into the world a sinless son named Jesus. Now, I know it takes a lot of imagination. (laughs) A sinless son into the world. Born of a virgin. A person who was tempted in all points like we are, yet he never sinned. Every temptation that you have faced or could face, Jesus faced, and he never gave in one time. He never gave in one time. And when he went to the cross, on the cross, God took the sins of a sinner like Jose, and he imputed them to Christ. And then God punished Christ As if he were a wicked sinner like Jose. He took all of Jose's sins and put them on Christ and then punished Jesus for Jose's sins. Imputation. Of course, it's much bigger than that because it was the the collective guilt of everyone who would ever believe the gospel was laid upon the back of Christ. And that's why Christ the God-man who has incredible strength and power groans on the cross and cries out. That's why he cries out for mercy on the cross because he's being punished for sins. And Jesus, he knows this is going to happen. So in, the, in, in Gethsemane, he prays, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me, the cup of God's judgment, because he knows how bad it's going to be when God crushes him. You can read Isaiah chapter 53, verses like 10 through 12, where it says that about the suffering servant, you will look on the travail of his soul and be satisfied. The only thing that satisfies God's justice is the lamb, the substitute who bears the guilt, who dies. Now, that's what Jesus did. Our unrighteousness was imputed to him, but then, Turn it this way. Now, let me do a little better job because you'll hang better. The righteousness of Christ. The divinity of Christ. The righteousness, the beauty of Christ. His God-pleasing status was imputed to Jose. See how different that is around Jose? Just, it's different. It's more glorious. God imputes 
our sin to Christ, and then through faith, he imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus so that because you are as righteous as Jesus is, you can go to heaven. Thank you, sirs. You guys can be seated. Thanks for helping me out there. God laid upon Jesus our sin and then punished Jesus like he was us on the cross. And then God imputes to us his righteousness and then he treats us like a son of God. Like a son of God. Have you ever worked at a company that was like a family business? And ever worked with the owner's son (laughs) or the owner's daughter? And there you are, slugging away, doing your best, and the son of the owner seems to get a little special benefit. Can come in a little bit later, maybe make a little more money, maybe get to drive the company car when, you know, for after hours when you don't get to drive it. There are benefits in being a son. The benefits of being a son of God, a child of God, is you get to go to heaven. But you only get to go to heaven because you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then the Bible is fascinating. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to be called the sons of God. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you become entitled to the title of son, of daughter of God. And you are a part of his kingdom then. You are a part of his kingdom. Now, There's an example of how powerfully this takes place in the Old Testament. And um, so if you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12, you can read about it. It's David's sin with Bathsheba. This is just to show you how powerfully safe you are with God. When God puts away your sin, when God puts it on Christ and gives you his righteousness, this is, this is, this is a mind-blowing illustration. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is not where he ought to be, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing named Bathsheba, and he has an adulterous affair with her. And then they find out a little bit later that she, her husband is a soldier. He's off fighting for David. And she finds out that she's pregnant. And so she tells David, you know, I'm going to have a baby. Uriah's been out there at the field, so everybody's going to know what's been happening back at the ranch. And so David, he gets Uriah to come home. And he tells Uriah, he gives him a furlough. He says, come home. He says, go home to that wife of yours, you know, and enjoy yourself. And, but Uriah won't go home. He says, how can I go home and, and be with my wife when all my buddies are out there laying down their life? And he says, how could I do that? And so Uriah won't go. And so David says, well, I got to get this covered up. I got to cover my sin some way. And so David gets Uriah drunk. And then when Uriah is good and hammered, He tries to get him to go home. 
Uriah won't go home. He walks out of the house, out of the palace, and falls asleep outside. He doesn't go home. And then David realizes the only way I can cover this up is if I have Uriah killed. And that's exactly what happens. Uriah gets killed in battle. David waits an appropriate amount of time, and then he marries Bathsheba, the widow of one of his soldiers. You could see how that probably looked pretty good for him because now he's caring for her. You know, her husband's lost his life, so he takes her as his wife. Then the baby that they conceive together in sin is born. And David thinks it's, he's gotten by with it. Then, you, then Nathan the prophet comes to see David, and he says, David, he tells David this little story about a man who had a hundred sheep. And then he had a visitor come to visit him, and instead of killing one of his 100 sheep to feed his visitor, he killed the neighbor's sheep, who only had one sheep, and fed it to his guest. He said, you, you know, Roger, and David is very upset about this, because David's a shepherd. He understands the value of livestock. He's very, he's very angry about it. And so... He tells the, the prophet that he should have to restore fourfold for this. But then Nathan says, he says, David, you are the man. You know you sinned. You took Uriah the Hittite's wife. You've sinned against God. Now, I want you to, if you're at 2 Samuel, listen to the reading of this brief exchange. 2 Samuel 11 It's in 12 now. The sin is in 11. The remedy is in 12. This is Nathan pronouncing the judgment. Verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You've done this. And then he lists all the things that David has done. All the things that God has done for David. All the blessings. And then there's there's an earthly consequence. But then in verse 13, it says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David does not try to justify. He doesn't try to defend himself. He just says, I have sinned before the Lord. Notice what the response of the prophet is. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. This this sin that David committed was a capital offense. But the Lord put it away. God canceled out David's sin, and God says, you're not going to suffer for it. But my friends, do you know who suffered for David's sin? In type, the baby suffers because the child dies. The innocent child dies because of David's sin. In type. In reality, in efficacy, Who paid the price for David's sin? Jesus. On the cross. See the typology? The innocent dying for the guilty? This is what Jesus has done. He has died for the guilty. And the Lord, because of this atonement, was able to set aside this sin and forgive it. This is what Christ has done. Christ has borne our sins to the cross. 
And if you look at Romans 3, 21 through 27, you'll encounter a word. Well, in the NIV, you encounter these two words, atoning sacrifice. In other translations, you encounter the word propitiation, which means atoning sacrifice. The sacrifice that appeases God's wrath and God's justice for sin is Jesus. Jesus died to satisfy justice. He died to satisfy God's wrath. Now, David, after he goes through this scenario with his child dying, with his judgment before God, David sits down and he writes a psalm. And this psalm is Psalm 32. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn there and look at it. Psalm 32. And then if you have, if you have a Bible, you're able to do this. If you have an uh, iPad, you probably can't. But if you turn to, Psalm 32 is where you want to be. If you turn to Psalm 4, I mean Romans chapter 4, you'll, you'll see this written down for us again. The Apostle Paul, when writing about justification by faith, he cites Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Romans 4, verses 7 and 8 say. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And then Psalm 32, listen to the reading there. Verse 1, blessed is one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Verse 5, Psalm 32. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David confesses before God his sin. He doesn't doesn't try to cover it up. And he's justified. And that's why David writes these words, Blessed is the man who, to whom the Lord does not impute his transgressions. Blessed is the man who has his sins imputed to Christ. Christ came and he bore your sins to the cross. And so when we eat and drink communion today, it is in commemoration of the day when Jesus Christ paid for your sins and my sins on the cross both past, present, and future sins. Every time we have communion together, it, it, it is not a re-offering of Christ, that Christ has died once again for us. That's not what it is. It is a commemoration of his once and final sacrifice for sin, that he died for our sins. And no more payment has to be made. Christ has paid it all. And by faith in Christ, you can have it too. And if you don't put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're still in a negative status with God. You're still at odds with God. But the minute you do, your status changes and it's not the same anymore. You have everlasting life. You have forgiveness. You have atonement. You have justification. Romans chapter 8 puts all these in the past tense. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are 
justified, sanctified, and glorified. It's a done deal. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places through the Holy Spirit. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ. But if you don't put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to come to that day of judgment. And they're going to judge your works, a proper accounting of what you do and do not deserve. And then in that last book, the Lamb's Book of Life, they'll scan through there. And if your name is not in that book, you're not going to go to heaven. But if your name is there, if, you do, if they do scan those pages, because this is, this is how I think it's going to work, okay? When I, when I stand there, I really believe that when the judges my works, I really believe all of my bad works are like Mount Everest. And all of my good works are like Mount Scott in Oklahoma. 2,500 feet and some change. Very small. Very small. But that's not what's going to get me into heaven. What's going to get me into heaven is because in the course of my life, I asked Jesus Christ to be my Savior and to forgive my sins. In the course of my life, I believed, I entrusted myself to him. When they open that book of life, they're going to get down there through the A's and through the B's, the B-A's, the B-A-S, the B-A-S-H, the B-A-S-H-A's. I got to be right at the top. Basham, comma, Terry Lee, the second. And they'll say, all right, go to the right. Because my name's in the Lamb's Book of Life. Not because of anything I've done, but because I put my trust in Jesus alone. Now, I want to ask you this question personally. What are you trusting in to take you to heaven? Are you trusting in your good works? It's not going to, you're going to fail, you're going to come up short. You're trusting in who your mother or your father is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't come down through the blood of human parents. The only thing that comes down through the blood of human parents is sin. So I've been a really good person. I don't know. The judgment, doesn't, the judgment says that doesn't matter. What matters is your name is in that book. So I don't believe all that hogwash. Okay, what if it's true? What if it's true? How do you know it's not true? You say, well, how do you know it's true? Well, I'm believing it's true. Well, I'm believing it's not true. (laughs) Okay. Well, I believe it is true. And if it turns out to be true, I'm going to be all right. And if it's not true, I haven't lost anything. But if you don't believe it, and it is true, you lost it all. Everything. Everything. You say, well, I don't know what I should do. 
what you should do is put your faith and trust in Christ. So I don't understand how all that works. Jesus doesn't say you got to understand. He says you got to believe. And all of you guys do things all the time you don't understand. How is it that a boat made of steel that weighs a billion pounds can float on water? I don't understand how that works. How is it that a little box of wood, you can put a string across it and flick it and make beautiful sound? I don't understand how that works. Doesn't stop me from playing it, though. Doesn't stop me from going on boats. I don't understand. I trust. Trust in Jesus. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you go to church and read the Bible, you'll begin to understand. But it begins with putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we've, I've labored long over this sermon this morning to try to condemn these people, condemn them to the point that they will look to you for release and for forgiveness and salvation. And Lord, I pray that you would help them to not only mentally understand, but to feel their need of a Savior. And I pray, Lord, that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. With your head bowed and your eyes still closed, if you're here this morning and you want to trust Christ as your Savior, and you think, I don't know exactly how to do it, you could pray like this and say, Lord, Forgive my sins and save me because Jesus lived and died for me. I'm trusting in him. That's the way you could pray and ask the Lord to save you. And if you do that with a heart of faith, believing it, Scripture says that you shall be saved. For with the heart man believeth, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a promise from God to you. He will save you. You may say, well, how am I going to know if it works? How am I going to know if something significant has taken place? You'll know. Because a great transaction has taken place. And God's going to make himself known to you in greater and greater ways. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.